John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 say, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to say thank you for worshiping with us today. Whether you're online or you're here in person, we believe that there's something God wants to say to all of us. But before we get into John chapter 18, I need you to understand that from the very beginning of his gospel, John has been building a metaphor. He's been building this metaphor of Jesus as both light and life. And he does that by using the Greek word for light 17 different times in just 12 chapters. And each time he does, the word light is specifically tied to Jesus and who he is. And he even quotes Jesus as saying in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows after me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, John made it abundantly clear that light and life go hand in hand. He does this by using the word light 17 times, but he also, through his use of the word darkness, makes it clear that there is no life, there is no light apart from Jesus. And what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is that before there was any light or anything else, there was only darkness. And that darkness was inside of a void, and it's this very mysterious picture. But it's into this darkness that God speaks and God creates. And before the rest of his good creation could come into existence, God chooses to create light. And I believe that God does that because he wanted to show us from the very beginning what he's like and what he does. And what he does is that he, he brings light to the darkness. And so across the first two chapters of the Bible, we see that God's intent for his good creation was that it would be filled with light and with life. But in Genesis chapter 3, as so many of us have heard that story of the talking serpent at the tree, whether it was pomegranates or apples or something else, we don't know. But as we've heard, that scene in Genesis 3 is where darkness entered into the world again. And if we pay attention to it, it's not that darkness came crashing in and stages a hostile takeover. Darkness eases in much like the moon does during a solar eclipse. Now, I don't know how many of you are like me, but you consider yourself a little bit, just a little bit of an astronomy nerd. Like, I don't have the constellations memorized or the planets or what galaxies are where, but I'm fascinated by space. Just the immensity of it and just how little we know, I find fascinating. I love the pictures that we're getting back from the James Webb Telescope. You can go Google that if you just want to see some amazing shots that will just blow your mind. But the fact of the matter is, I'm just a little bit of a space nerd. And so when we had a solar eclipse that was visible from the U.S. last was five years ago, a little bit over. It was August of 2017, and we saw something similar to this. It was way, way smaller, and you weren't supposed to look directly at it. But here in central Indiana, it didn't really have a huge effect. I remember being at work and I, I went outside, I saw it, and then I also kind of noticed like, hmm, it's like a really cloudy day. Like the shadows are gone, but that was really about it. But for millions of people along a particular path from Oregon all the way to South Carolina, the world went dark, it seemed. And they got to experience for about four and a half minutes what is called the umbra. It's the darkest part of the shadow cast by the moon during a solar eclipse. 
And for those four and a half minutes, those millions of people experienced night in the middle of the day. So what I find the most exciting, though, is that the next solar eclipse visible from the U.S. is going to be April 8th. Okay, so go ahead and mark your calendars, April 8th of 2024. All right, so just go ahead and put it in there now, and that way you don't forget. But if you are like me, what's the most exciting is that this time, central Indiana is directly in the path to experience that darkness. We will, for about four minutes at about 10 till 2, if we can trust NASA um, in their predictions, for those four minutes, we will experience the darkness, the darkest part of of an eclipse. And it will feel as if darkness has overcome the world, as if darkness has overcome the light. And so if we see Genesis chapter 3 as the beginning of an eclipse, John chapters 18 and 19 are the totality of the eclipse. They're the darkest part of the eclipse. And as we step into John chapter 18 today, what we see is the dramatic scene that John has been building for 17 chapters finally come into view as a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness clash. And of all the places that this could happen, it takes place in a garden. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app, go ahead and open up to John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 1, where John writes, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. I want to pause right here for just a minute and give you a little bit of context about what John just mentioned with the Kidron Valley. Because it sounds kind of like he's just giving directions with landmarks, which isn't always helpful for those of you who do that. Um, Street names are much better. But what John is saying with this simple mention of the Kidron Valley is something very significant. And to understand that, we need to understand how the temple was constructed and constructed. Because there was a stream through this valley and the drainage system from the temple flowed directly into this stream. So that as the blood of sacrifices was drained out of the temple and things were washed, it would be carried away from the city. Now, the first century Jewish historian Josephus estimates that there were roughly 250,000 lambs slaughtered for sacrifices during the Passover week, which is when John 18 takes place. So get this picture in your mind that in the dark of night, Jesus and his remaining 11 disciples walk through this valley and cross a stream that is literally running red with the blood of sacrificial lambs. It's hard to miss what John is saying here as the one and only Lamb of God crosses over a stream that is running red with the blood of lambs that could only cleanse the outside of a person. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author tells us that the old system, the blood of lambs and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, could only cleanse our bodies or the bodies of ancient Jewish practitioners from ceremonial impurity. But by the power of the eternal spirit, Jesus Christ offered himself as a one and only perfect sacrifice for God. And so what John is telling us with this brief mention of the route that they took to get to this particular garden is that the old is gone and something new is coming in. John is telling us that everything is changing. 
And so that's what John wants us to see as Jesus and his remaining 11 disciples enter the garden. And so we continue in verse 2. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing with them. And when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, Jesus asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This is a pretty familiar garden scene if you've been around church for a while. If you've ever attended a Good Friday service or an Easter service, you're pretty familiar with how this, how this plays out. And Matthew and the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus had been praying so intensely by this point that he was actually sweating blood. But John chooses to leave that out for some reason. And I think the reason John chooses to leave that out is because he wants us to look at this through a wide angle lens because the picture he's painting is that Jesus in the dark of the night in this garden is being surrounded by a mob. And this mob is representative of the powers of darkness. And so what we see is that it's the attempt of darkness to overshadow the light. Now, there's some debate about the actual size of this mob. Some say it was as small as 200. Others say that it was upwards of 1,000. But most scholars and people who are smarter than me think that it was about 600 in size, somewhere in that neighborhood. But realistically, the exact number doesn't matter. Whether it was 200, 600, or, or 1,500 or more, this mob represents the powers of darkness and the fact that so many people came with Judas carrying torches and lanterns and weapons was nothing more than an attempt at intimidation by a show of force. And we see this same darkness at play in the world today. I think most of us would agree that unlike any other time in history, our country is experiencing a pressure applied to the way of Jesus. And there's a greater resistance to the way of Jesus and the person of Jesus that comes along with that pressure. And there are at times it can feel not only intimidating, but discouraging and challenging. Honestly, a lot of times it can just feel really, really confusing. And it causes us to ask questions, God, like, what do I do about this part of our culture? Or how do I engage with this? Or how do I live a life that accurately represents you and your love and your grace and reflects your light into the world? Or maybe, maybe on just a little bit more of a practical level and less philosophical, you're like my wife Kristen and I, where we ask the question, God, how do we raise kids in a world that seems to be growing darker and darker by the day. I honestly wish I had an answer for that last one, <laughs> but I don't. All I can tell you is that as these questions enter our mind, we need to remember the way Jesus interacted with this mob in the garden, because what we see with Jesus is that he refused to be intimidated. What we see with Jesus is that as this mob 
comes in and surrounds him, he steps forward. And John makes it clear in verse 4 that Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. Those are the words. Like, Jesus knew exactly how this was going to play out. And the reason he knew exactly how it was going to play out is because he was really the one in control. Because as he steps forward, rather than just letting this mob eventually find him in the garden, Jesus steps forward and takes control. He takes control by forcing them to declare their intentions. The intentions that they are there for one person and one person only. And in response to the powers of darkness, what we see is that Jesus speaks the holy name of God. Our English translations have added the word he for the sake of a smooth reading experience, for lack of a better term. But the original manuscripts make it clear that Jesus only said two words. He said, I am, just like we just sang. He said, I am. And I am is the exact name that God gave himself, speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And it's also the exact name that both ancient and modern Jewish people deem too holy to speak. And as Jesus steps forward and he claims this, claims this name, he makes it abundantly clear that he's taking control of the situation in the garden and that the powers of darkness cannot stand against the power and the authority of Jesus. And that no one will take his life from him, but that he will give it up for the ransom of many. Jesus was in complete control that night, and that's what we need to remember when we ask ourselves those questions. Now, I, also, I love the detail that John gave us that this group of 600 or however many it was literally falls over at the name of God. And Judas is included in that, which I just think is kind of funny because John and Judas would have known each other for some time, so it's almost like he just takes a little jab. But I think the reality is, is that John just wants us to see abundantly clearly that the powers of darkness cannot stand against the light of the world. And the same is true today. It's easy sometimes to read the Bible and think, oh, that happened so long ago, and we, we recognize these as true stories, but we need to apply them to today. And despite the onslaught of opposition against Jesus in our modern day, as blatant or as subversive as it may be, Jesus remains in control. He remains sovereign over all of creation. And all that happened that night was an attempt by the darkness to extinguish the light. And the literary genius of John, he never actually names the garden. He just continually calls it the garden, the garden, the garden. And while Matthew calls it Gethsemane for his own literary reasons, the truth of the matter is that it actually took place on the Mount of Olives. It was an olive grove, so there would be large olive trees. And that's why this mob came with torches and lanterns is to, to look in the shadows. But Jesus refused to hide. And I think the reason that John never actually names the garden is because he wants his readers to be drawn back to another garden where there was another confrontation between light and dark. And as we mentioned earlier, a little bit ago, Genesis chapter 3 was essentially the beginning of an eclipse that reaches its totality in John chapter 18. 
And I think John wants us to specifically see the differences in how these two conflicts play out. And I want to lay this out for you because in Eden, darkness entered a world of light. And on the Mount of Olives, the powers of darkness attempted to drown out the light of the world. In Eden, mankind fell to the powers of darkness. But on the Mount of Olives, one man stood against them. In Eden, Adam and Eve hid in their shame. But on the Mount of Olives, Jesus boldly steps forward to confront the darkness. In Eden, Adam and Eve relinquish the authority that God had given them. But on the Mount of Olives, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the authority that has always been his is now on display. John wants his readers to see that Jesus came into the world to reset the world. He came into the world to bring light and life back to his creation, and he will not do it using the methods of this world. And that's why verse 10 is so important, because in verse 10 we see that Peter, who we all know and love, right? Impetuous Peter is one guy with a sword. And so after Jesus has knocked everybody over and they get back up, Peter comes out with the sword. Now, I'm assuming that his intentions were noble. But the truth of the matter is, is that when Peter cuts this guy's ear off, his name was Malchus, Jesus immediately puts a stop to it, telling Peter to put his sword back where it goes. In essence, he's saying, Peter, you can't fight the powers of darkness with the methods and the tactics of the darkness. And so Luke, in his account of this story, in contrast to Peter, who steps forward to harm, Jesus steps forward to heal and ultimately ends up healing the ear of Malchus. Which has always made me wonder what happens next to Malchus, because we don't get that part of the story. Personally, I don't see how he could, he could not come to believe, but that's one of those things we won't find out on this side of eternity. Because John writes this so that we can see what Jesus is doing. Whatever Peter's intentions were, as noble as they may have been, the fact of the matter is Jesus didn't need Peter to defend him. Peter just saw 600 people fall over at two words spoken by Jesus. And for some reason he thinks one fisherman with a sword is going to be able to do something against 600 people carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. But Jesus steps forward to put an end to it. And in the same way Jesus didn't need Peter to defend him, he doesn't need us to defend him. He needs us to live like him. So if we are to engage with our world despite the onslaught of opposition or ridicule we may seem, using the methods of this world against the darkness in this world will have no effect. The only methods that can change this world are the methods of Jesus. And so as we reflect his love and his redemption and his grace into the world, that's the only way things are going to change. And so from here, Jesus lets himself get arrested, and he's then taken to the, the house of the former high priest, who is extremely corrupt, and put through a joke of a trial. And this joke of a trial was really nothing more than... Um, Another attempt at intimidation with some added humiliation as well. 
And from there, he's drugged to the house of the uh, Roman governor, Pilate, who's staying in the city during the festival. And so we pick up our story in verse 28, where John writes, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? It's pretty easy to hear how annoyed Pilate is at all of this, but I don't want us to miss, in, in, in noticing that, I don't want us to miss what's actually happening in here, because in the same way that Jesus stepped forward to take control of that garden situation, he steps forward to take control of the conversation with Pilate. And while Pilate is the one asking the questions, Jesus is the one who's really putting Pilate in a place to make a decision about who he believes Jesus is. You see, Pilate was asking his question from a political perspective. It was his job to make sure that nobody stepped out of line and and attempted to disrupt Roman rule in this whole region. That's the filter through which Pilate is asking his question. Jesus, though, is asking questions on an entirely different level. And we see, what we see here is that Pilate is concerned with the state of Rome, while Jesus is concerned with the state of Pilate's heart. And throughout the conversation, Jesus relentlessly pursues Pilate, and ultimately Pilate tries to let Jesus go because he can't see a charge, a political charge, against Jesus. Against Jesus. But again, that's because he was concerned with political matters, not with spiritual matters. And as this conversation goes on, we start to see the darkness that has taken root in Pilate's heart. So continuing in verse 37, we read, You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. And with this, he went out, he went out again to the Jews. Now, you can hear the annoyance in Pilate's voice. First of all, he gets woken up early as this group of corrupt Jewish leaders drag some rabbi Pilate has likely never even heard of to the door of what's essentially the Airbnb where he's staying in the city. And they start demanding that he be executed. And so Pilate, doing his due diligence, starts to question this seemingly random rabbi who he's never heard of. And so as he's waking up too early, earlier than he probably wants, and being demanded to execute somebody, and he's asking questions of this guy, he can't see, it seems like he can't get a straight answer out of him. But what we see Jesus doing is attempting to illuminate the darkened areas of Pilate's heart. 
Because the darkness that we see going on in Pilate is what we see going on in so many hearts today. And that darkness is spiritual complacency. It's the idea that making, making a decision about who Jesus is doesn't really matter because all that matters is my own experience. Or at least so we tend to think. And we, we read this and we hear it all the times in statements like, you do you and live your truth and just do what makes you happy because that's all that matters. But all of those statements and so many others that are so similar are just lies and that if we start to believe them, they, they draw us towards places of spiritual complacency. And on some level, I can kind of understand why people are drawn to them because who doesn't want to be in control of their own life? But all of those statements and so many others lack conviction and they lack any sort of truth. And we need to see them for what they are. They are snares that will draw us away from the goodness of God and draw us away from his word. A few weeks ago in my men's group, we were discussing one of the chapters in John and um, one of the guys mentioned a text he had gotten from his mom. His mom's name is Gloria. And what Gloria said was, make sure your lamp is filled with oil because the world is getting darker and darker. See, Gloria was talking about engaging with this world the way Jesus engages with the world by bringing the light of his love and his grace to the world. But if we think about that statement for a minute, we have to ask the question, how do we make sure our lamps are filled with oil? Well, it goes back to John chapter 15, where Jesus said, remain in me and I remain in you. Abide in me, remain dependent upon me, and I'll take care of the rest. And so in order for you and I to be able to um, stand against this type of darkness in our world and in our own lives, it's crucial that we know the word of God and that we choose daily to remain dependent upon Jesus. And I want to point out to you that the reason Jesus was able to respond this way against the mob and to Pilate is because of his continued dependency upon the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 18, we see Jesus living out everything he taught in chapters 13 through 16. And the amazing thing about Jesus to me, though, in this chapter is that every, in every situation, he is the one to step forward. He stepped forward in the garden to meet the mob. And he stepped forward in the conversation with Pilate in an attempt to illuminate those darkened areas. But the truth of the matter is he continues to step forward today. He steps forward into your life and into mine. And author and pastor Max Lucado put it the best, I think, in a book he, that's almost as old as I am, when he wrote, if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one. He will leave the last one for us. The choice is ours. So I ask you, have you made that choice? Have you made a choice on who Jesus is have you decided, like Pilate, that it's not really worth choosing because it doesn't matter? Or have you decided, like Peter, that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ? We skipped over the middle of this chapter, and I want to go back to it now. We're not going to read the whole thing because we've heard it so many times. But in the middle of this chapter, we see the three-time denial of Peter 
that Jesus, that Jesus had predicted. But I want to point out to you what John wrote in verse 15. In 1815, he wrote, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. You see, right before this, Peter had cut off a stranger's ear, and Jesus rebukes him for a, attempting to defend him using the tactics of this world. And so then, once he lets himself get arrested, the remaining disciples scatter. They run for their lives, but Peter and another disciple, who is most likely John, because John has a tendency to not name himself in the Gospels, in his own Gospel anyway. These two disciples say, I can't leave him alone. So they follow after Jesus. We don't know how close they were. We don't know if they were at the back of this line of 600 people or if they were struggling to, to be right up close to Jesus. But what we do know is that they followed Jesus all the way to the house where he was put on trial. And once Peter is able to get in, sorry, what I want to point out, one other thing I want to point out is that if we compare Peter and Pilate, we see that Pilate is a picture of spiritual complacency, while Peter is a picture of spiritual intensity. Peter knew who Jesus was, and he refused to let, to let him go off on his own. And this is where Peter takes most of his punches, because like we said, Peter was the first one to declare that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. And as Peter finally gets into the garden. He starts to get questioned about whether or not he knows Jesus. And the first person was a young servant girl who was simply working at the gate. The second was a group of people standing around a fire with Peter who were trying to stay warm on a cold early spring night. But the third person to ask was somebody who had been in the garden. And not only had this person been in the garden, but they were related to Malchus, the guy who got his ear cut off. And not only that, but John tells us that this person saw Peter in the garden. I may be reading a little bit too much into the story, but it sounds like this person who was related to Malchus saw Peter cut off his ear. And I'm no expert in how reliable an eyewitness account is, but I've got a pretty strong feeling that if you saw somebody cut your cousin's ear off, like, you're going to remember what that person looks like um, because that's going to be a traumatic setting. And so this third question is the most accusatory of the three. But with all three of them, we see that Peter denies even knowing Jesus. And what we see is that as Peter loses his nerve, the powers of darkness have an influence over his heart on that night. And the fact of the matter is, you and I have, the, we are vulnerable to the same influence. And we see this play out in our own lives all the time. Peter had clearly made his choice about who he believed Jesus was. But at this point, we see the influence that was held over him that night. And Look, this is why Jesus predict, or this is why Jesus um, warned his disciples about what was going to happen to them in chapter 16, and this is why he prayed for them and for you and I in chapter 17, because he knew that this power of darkness would continue to have some influence. But the spoiler alert here is that P 
Peter comes back from this, and Peter ultimately becomes the leader of the early church. And not only that, but he preaches and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. And through the power of Jesus' name, Peter will heal. And ultimately, Peter will be persecuted for the name of Jesus, but he will be able to rejoice because of it. In Luke's version of the story, we get a little bit different scene where Jesus is, is in the courtyard when this happens. And so as Peter makes his third denial, we read this in Luke. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. Look, Luke gives us a little bit different scene, and as much drama as John has written into chapter 18, Luke takes that and turns it up to 11 by adding this note that Jesus and Peter locked eyes. And because Peter has been beaten up by pastors like me for so long, we read these verses and we assume that Jesus looks at Peter with frustration and with shame, but the word that the word that Luke used for look in ancient literature often meant a look of love or a look of concern. And what we see, what we see here is Jesus looking at Peter, not with disdain, not with frustration, not with annoyance, and not even with an attitude of, I told you so. But he looks at Peter and he sees through the darkness that had influence over his heart that night. And he sees the real Peter. The late pastor and theologian, William Barclay, put it better than I ever could when he wrote, it was the real Peter who protested his loyalty in the upper room. It was the real Peter who drew his lonely sword in the moonlight of the garden. And it was the real Peter who followed Jesus because he could not leave his Lord alone. It was not the real Peter who cracked beneath the tension and who denied his Lord. And it and that is just what Jesus could see. The forgiving love of Jesus is so great that he sees our real personality, not in our faithlessness, but in our loyalty, not in our defeat by sin, but in our reaching out after goodness, even when we are defeated. And the same way that Jesus looked at Peter that night in the courtyard is the same way he looks at you and me and everyone else today. Despite what the world claims about Jesus, the truth of the matter is when Jesus looks at you, he sees the real you, the you you could never see in yourself, and the you he created you to be. Look, John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 say, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look, this isn't John just making a metaphor to carry us through his gospel, and it's not just foreshadowing what happened in the garden that night. John is creating a metaphor for you and I to hold on to and, and foreshadowing what Jesus does in the life of all who trust him. Jesus brings light and he brings life. And that night in the garden, that light and life was available to the mob that Jesus stepped forward to meet. It was available the next morning when he talked with Pilate. And it was available to Peter after denying even knowing him. 
Because you see, just a few days later, we see Jesus doing what he always does. He's pursuing Peter. And he pursues Peter the same way he pursues you and I. And he does that because he is the God who brings light to the darkness. And that same offer of grace and love and redemption that was available to Peter days later is available to you and me today. But what we need to understand is that Jesus will not force himself on anyone. But he also won't withhold himself from anyone. And so whatever you may, are maybe holding on to, whatever secrets or shame that you've got locked away in your heart, that you try to forget and that you get uncomfortable every time you hear somebody mention related to it, whatever that is, just know that Jesus is just waiting for you to give that over to him. He pursued Peter to bring light to the darkness and he does the same for you and me. And his grace is more than enough. And his blood is far stronger than the blood of any lamb that was ever offered to cleanse anybody. And so if you are uncomfortable right now, if there's something stirring inside of you and you're squirming in your seat just a little bit, I'm going to assume that that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is doing something in you. Or the Holy Spirit really wants to do something with you. And so if that's where you are right now, don't leave today without talking to me or Jerry or Michael or finding somebody with a lanyard because anybody with a lanyard can get you to who you need to talk to. Because if you are uncomfortable in your seat in this moment as you hear this, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to take a step closer to you. And he wants you to take a step closer to him. And that's all it takes. Just one step, and he will take care of the rest. God Almighty, you are the great I am, and as we saw in your word today, no power of darkness or hell can stand against your holy name. No power, no person can stand when they see your authority. And so God, right now I ask that you make us uncomfortable, that you illuminate the dark areas of our own hearts that we need to give over to you. Bring to mind those things in our lives that we need you to, to redeem. Those things in our lives that we need your strength. And remind us, God, that despite the darkness of this world, you win and you refuse to be intimidated. Let us trust in that. Trust that you have secured the victory. And while we are living in the continued clash of these two kingdoms, we can choose to be with you. God, thank you for your love, your grace your redemption that is so readily available to all who call upon your name. Lord, it's in your precious, powerful, holy name that we pray. Amen.